Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Uh, this is Tour Guide Tell All. We are back in your ear holes for October, and we're so excited to be here. Uh, Tour Guide Tell All is your podcast about all things history, American history, world history, uh, Washington, D.C. related, a little bit of scandal, a little bit of fun. And we're here. We're back in your uh, your brains for another installment of some scandal <laughs> with this one. This will be good. And as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are Rebecca. <laughs> and we're here. We are back. It's October, which is the best month to be mostly anywhere, really, I think. Yeah. It is definitely the best month to be in Washington, D.C. Oh. It is like the day we're recording this is like a perfect fall day. It is. It's really lovely. Perfect. And we're giving perfect fall tours. So come on out for them. Obviously, it's October. So we're giving plenty of spooky tours, the ghosts and whatnot. But we also have non spooky tours. If that's not your thing, if you're not into the season, uh, we have our regular Lincoln tours and mall tours and museum tours and all that fun stuff. So we are here and excited. Uh, we also I also want to shout out our patrons. Our patrons are the best. They keep the the lights on and the motors running we love you we love you patrons we love you the best um and so you get an extra if you in fact if you're a patron this month you're going to get some extra supreme court juiciness from us so this won't be the only bit of supreme court happiness you're going to get this month uh and the last thing i want to mention before we kind of dive in is we are going this um podcast talks a little bit about Georgetown and Georgetown is awesome. And so we want to mention that we give tours of historic Georgetown uh, and we talk about the subject of our podcast, at least I do uh, on that tour and a bunch of other things that are really cool and fun. So Georgetown's lovely. There's a lot of scandal and even ghosts there. So definitely if you're around uh, and this podcast inspires you, come on out to Georgetown. But Becca, what are we talking about today? 
Today, we are talking about a name that I think should be better known than it is, and that's Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. I think when you sort of ask the average non-tour guidey person, like, who are the Supreme Court justices that you know, we tend to think of the contemporary justices, or maybe you might have studied John Marshall in school, or maybe there's uh, somebody like Warren or Berger that you remember hearing about. Douglas, I think a little bit, unless you're in the weeds a little legally, or you went to law school, might not be a name that comes up, but he is one, just like a fascinating man with a very interesting, scandalous life. And two, he's a really fascinating figure on the court. We're going to talk a little more in depth about this, but he sort of enters the court just before the era of hyperpartisanship. And he's going to sort of indicate a little sea change on the court a bit. And I just think that a lot of what Douglas is concerned about in his life, both on and off the court, are things that we still talk about today. So it's a story about the Supreme Court, but it's also a little bit about D.C., about Georgetown, and about people. It is. And it's a really interesting tale. William O. Douglas is a fascinating guy. We don't do as much Supreme Court history, so this will be nice to kind of talk about. And as always, our caveat, we are not lawyers. Do not take take legal advice from us. Do not take legal advice from us. Uh, We're historians. And so if we get perhaps some of the nuance of some of the judicial intricacies incorrect, please forgive us. We're not, again, we're not lawyers. Apologies Um, to all of you that did go to law school. Um, And let me also just mention, too, part of the reason that we're digging into a court figure, both for this episode and the patron episode this month, is October is traditionally the start of the Supreme Court season. So um, for those of you who are not Supreme Court watchers, as it were, uh, the first Monday of October is when the court comes back into session to begin a new year. So that's why we have the court on the brain as guides that are up on Capitol Hill, uh, often talking about the court with visitors. Yes. So October's the beginning of their term. Yay. Oh, (laughs) William O. Douglas. The O stands for Orville. William Orville Douglas. (laughs) I just find the, the, I I did not know what the O stood for uh, until very recently. And I assumed when I first looked that it was, he was named after Orville Wright, who was the first in flight, but it turns out probably not because they weren't famous when he was born. So they don't become famous for another few years. Uh, William Douglas is born in 1898 in Minnesota. So he is, yeah, he's born there. His family bounces around. He's not from a wealthy background. Uh, They move a few times, struggling to find work and a sort of permanent home. They're going to settle in California for a bit. William is sick as a child, as a little, little kid, with what is possibly polio. That's what he called it. He thought it was polio, but was also possibly colic. Unsure. But his mother finds his recovery to be miraculous. So he's very, very sick. And his mother finds his survival to be a miracle. And she tells him. She's really going to kind of coddle him. She will, after he kind of has this miracle recovery, call him my treasure, which maybe for a young kid is it's sweet, but also going to maybe bump up that ego a little bit. Um, And she's going to make big predictions about his potential career path. She's pretty confident once he makes this miracle recovery that he's going to be president of the United States. Spoiler alert. He does not become president of the United States. (laughs) 
he does do okay though. So, you know, we'll get to that. Um, his father dies when he's very little, when he's only six and his mother now has three young children to raise. Uh, and so she's going to settle in Washington state. Again, they move around a bit. Uh, his father was a minister. And so they, anyway, he, they end up in Washington state near Yakima, Washington. He attends, uh, he's got a hard scrabble childhood. He works as hard as he can to, uh, in school to get himself a scholarship to college. He seems to know uh, that education is his way to better himself, to further his ambitions. And he's got a very early interest in the law. So it's very clear, even when he's an undergrad, that that's what he wants to do. He's going to go to Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, which is fun to say. I want to say that more. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he works hard. He pays like he pays his own way. He picks cherries in the summertime. This is going to actually inspire him in fact, to pursue a legal career. He talks about how he's working with very poor migrant workers. Uh, he works with the poorest of the poor, the um, Chicanos and immigrants and uh, IWWs, which is uh, International Workers of the World Wobblies, and labor activists. And he sees their poor treatment, how much cruelty they're subjected to, uh, the difficulties uh, that they have, the struggles to just maintain, get any sort of living and sort of eke out a living uh, and how badly they're treated. And that is his impulse to be a force in the law. He wants to go into the law to be a force for good for people that are often forgotten by uh, the powers that be. So he comes from a good place, which I think is really nice. Yeah, this is this is not a man who has anything sort of handed to him. He also, I should say, because of that, like similar, I think, to Theodore Roosevelt, because he had that illness as a young man, he really values staying fit, staying active. He's not a man interested in just sitting at a library table desk. You know, he's very smart and intellectual, but he's a man that wants to be outside moving. He believes in vigorous activity. He will hike to strengthen his legs after, again, what he believes was a polio out in his childhood. And that's going to sort of set him on this path of being a man who really believes about being out in nature. He really values his time in nature, but also really values hard work, actual, you know, sweat breaking labor. Um, and that's something that will set him apart from some of the people he's going to kind of come across in his career. He decides to become a teacher after college and he thought, oh, I'll teach. I love teaching. I love knowledge. Um, and he thought, I'll teach and I'll save money to go to grad school. And it becomes very clear to him while he's teaching that it's not enough money to save. And so this is not a path to financial success. So he joins up with the Army ROTC. So this is a way he thinks that maybe he can get little bit of funding for graduate school. He's going to serve very briefly as a private in the Student Army Training Corps during World War One, and he's going to join up and it's going to be like October and the war is going to end in November. So the <laughs> armistice thankfully happens, but he is only in the Student Army Training Corps in active service for one month, which will cause some debate over his military record later in his life. But he was technically considered active duty. He pretty much then just decides, you know what, I'm going to hitchhike my way to New York uh, City. He gets on a sheep train. That's not a euphemism. He literally gets on a train full of sheep like a like a railroad you know traveler I'm hobo and he goes across the US to Columbia Law School and he basically gets into Columbia Law but he has no money and so he borrows and scrapes his way in he's going to work every odd job you can imagine in New York City again this is not a man who shies away from hard labor and one of the ways that he makes money for law school is he's going to write 
the text and the like coursework for correspondence classes. So he's in law school completing that coursework. And then he's also writing classes and coursework for people to do Columbia courses by mail. This is pre-online classes. It's amazing. Which I just think illustrates his work ethic. This is a man who... um is, is willing to work hard and he understands the value of hard work and not surprising. He graduates from Columbia second in this class. I can only imagine how much work that had to be and how much, how difficult that had to be surrounded by people at a place like Columbia who were born to this and have plenty of money. And here he is like working odd jobs constantly and presumably getting very little sleep because law school isn't like the easiest thing in the world and making, making sure that he gets this done, that this is the way that he wants to, um, he knows that this is his past success and just really working on it as hard as he can. And just to quickly put a little context into this, this is the 1920s at this time and so these are boom times Mm -hmm. as you probably know those boom times aren't going to last forever Mm. douglas is going to be well positioned to understand how hard it's going to be for people when the good times stop rolling because while this is a good time for many people he's working very 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 hard so this is his background is going to become very important he wants to get a supreme court clerkship but he couldn't get one so he gets a, a job at a firm and uh, that doesn't seem to have been a great fit for him. He's only there a few months. He goes back to Yakima, Washington, practices law there, but he starts teaching law at Columbia, uh, his alma mater, and then he joins the faculty of Yale Law School in New Haven, Connecticut. He becomes an expert on commercial litigation and bankruptcy law, which this is the 20s. Bankruptcy law is going to come in handy for him. It's going to be very useful. There's <laughs> like a little pres- prescient there. So he basically loves teaching. He loves being at Yale. The, the atmosphere is really, it really works for him in a lot of levels. He can shape the future lawyers of America because Yale is one of those schools, both today and definitely back then, where like the elite go. And this is where your future lawyers and bankers and cabinet secretaries and whatnot, they are going to Yale. And so he's getting a chance to shape this generation, the generations coming up with future lawyers with sort of a more elevated and modern understanding of the law. He identifies himself as part of the legal realist movement, uh, which pushes for understanding on the law based on more real world application. So he's not what we would, I think, call today a strict constitutionalist he's not like the he believes there needs to be some bend and give in the law to sort of apply it to modern life and modern circumstances and so that's kind of what he's going to apply to his students and kind of teach them about the idea that the law lives and moves and breathes and needs to be adapted a little bit so that's kind of where he is it, it can't all be philosophical it can't all be in the abstract it can't just be Here's what thousands for thousands of years we've said about this abstract concept. Douglas is very interested in, and he's teaching a lot of lawyers that in a, and think about this, the early 20th century, they've lived through a world war. Mm -hmm. They have lived through massive technological changes and upheaval. There's this understanding that the law 
doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the reality to which they are living. And his interest in really, is really understanding that beyond simply like, well, in a philosophical sense, how would this play out? Uh, and I think that that's really important because he's not the only one in this movement, but certainly he's positioned to be very meaningful at this moment where there's a little bit of a pushback uh, and a group of sort of newer and younger lawyers and law professors that are saying, look, we have to operate in the real world and we need the law to reflect that. And you can also see the 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 real beneficial aspects of somebody like Douglas, who's had the, who's had to pull himself up, who's really done a lot of work, who's worked with a bunch of diverse people, seeing how different ty- types of people live their lives and make their money. And he's teaching at a place like Yale, where a lot of people come from money or at least comfortable backgrounds. And to be able to say to people that it's all well and good to talk about these issues in a courtroom and in in a sort of more elevated way in a, in a abstract sort of way, but the law actually applies to real people and real circumstances and affects real lives that are different from perhaps the lives that you lead being at Yale. And so you can see the value, I can see the value of someone like that shaping the next generation of thinkers, of giving them the opportunity to view things beyond their own worldview. I can see him being very good at that. This also, I should just say, being at Yale puts him in a position to be noticed. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a place where people have connections to government, to movers and shakers. And so people start to know who William O. Douglas is. And that includes Franklin D. Roosevelt. So when Roosevelt um, becomes president of the United States, he's going to actually appoint William O. Douglas to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, And this is where Douglas is really going to be able to take his legal kind of philosophy and mindset and suddenly be plugged in with the government side, with policymakers, with new dealers, with progressives, with people that Roosevelt has brought in to tackle the depression and the troubles of the depression. And Douglas is going to have a chance to really go, okay, so there's the law side of things. How does that really work with our government, with our democracy, with the policies of a new president? And so um, he's, because of that profile, he's raised at Yale, he now is being pulled into the world of politics. And it also he's he has a background in bankruptcy law so that he understands financial matters, which is not always the way with lawyers, um, particularly understanding the nitty gritties of like financial transactions and financial workings. And so the SEC is created by FDR in the midst of the New Deal to sort of help out with the depression. And so to have Douglas come down and come from New York to Washington to work with the SEC, he's really saying you understand how this works in a real world sort of practical way. And so that's what he's going to do. He becomes an an advisor and friend to the president of the United States, which is pretty good for a guy who at this point is still in his thirties. And he hangs out with all kinds of cool and connected people uh, when he comes to Washington. For example, he'll hang out with a guy named Tommy Corcoran and Abe Fortas, both of whom are lawyers. Abe Fortas will later be appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, He meets with a lot of really cool progressives like Robert LaFollette, who's going to be a senator. He meets with President, well, future President Kennedy. He also then this group befriends this freshman representative from Texas named Lyndon Johnson. Little gentleman named LBJ. Little tiny LBJ. He doesn't go anywhere. You'll never hear about him again. 
Um, And so this is really like they're friends from way back. He's going to basically help Johnson to sort of consolidate power in Washington. And as we talked about earlier, um, when we did the Lewis Brandeis episode a while back, we talked about how Brandeis has a real understanding of financial matters and that that's not normal for a justice at this level. And so when Brandeis himself decides to retire in 1939, William O. Douglas is the natural next step, the fit, very good fit for the Brandeis seat on the court. And so that's exactly what Roosevelt thinks. Roosevelt nominates Douglas as Brandeis's replacement. In fact, Brandeis picks Douglas to replace him. So Brandeis says this is the guy who understands not only the practical applications of the law, but also financial matters. And Brandeis, if you remember, he was really interested in public interest law, giving back. He devoted a lot of time to helping people who would not ordinarily have the money or the the power to have a legal expert at that level. And so this is, it says something about Douglas, about how he views the law, how he views the world, that Brandeis picks him specifically uh, to be his successor on the court. I think it's important to also note here that Franklin D. Roosevelt (laughs) needs a court that is on his side. Yes. It's easy today with like a little bit of the distance of history to talk about the impact of the New Deal and Roosevelt, the way in which he sort of is able to lead the country during this difficult time. But that's not without significant pushback. That's not without significant legal challenges to many pieces of the New Deal. There's sort of a joke when the Supreme Court building opens in 1935 that has nice big windows to throw the New Deal out of. There were plenty, plenty, plenty of people and interests that wanted to peel back as much of the New Deal as possible. So FDR is, it is very much in his interest to have the most pro-New Deal justices he can get onto this court. And in fact, as you may know, FTR also is interested in expanding the size of the court, which does not happen. But he is interested in having someone like Douglas, who has in these last several years leading up, been building relationships with New Deal legislators, building relationships with New Deal activists, with people that are going to protect these New Deal initiatives. And so not only is Douglas kind of the perfect descendant to Brandeis, they're very much in line, but Douglas could not be more vociferously in favor of vast array of what FDR is doing in the New Deal. And FDR knows he needs somebody who's not afraid to stick up for the New Deal, someone who's going to not afraid to ruffle feathers, not afraid to be to be the minority opinion if he has to be. So um, FDR is definitely doing this in his own self-interest as well. And I think with this, that little bit note of note is important. Oh, sure. Listen, there's, it's very true. The presidents aren't altruistic in their Supreme Court picks. There's a, there's always a reason. Uh, in fact, even, uh, I think more so than even some contemporary presidents who might have one or two initiatives that they feel may come before the court. Everything FDR has tried to do yes. is going to almost face a legal challenge. So he needs a new dealer. He needs someone who has drank the Kool-Aid, bought into it, and is gonna has been involved with it from the ground up. Douglas will later reveal later on in life that he's summoned to a secret meeting at the White House, like the president wants to meet with him. And he doesn't know that the fact that he's going to get appointed to the Supreme Court is a a huge surprise to him. He thinks he's going to get something else in the government. And so the fact that Roosevelt nominates him to the Supreme Court was kind of a big deal. Roosevelt nominates him on March 20th. 
he is confirmed by the Senate on April 4th. So like two weeks later, imagine a Supreme Court confirmation that takes two weeks. Like that's almost funny today. Like it's so unbelievable. He is confirmed by a vote of 62 to four. So that's a pretty, that's pretty good. That's an overwhelming confirmation. That's pretty bipartisan. Yeah, all four negative votes are cast by Republicans, which is not terribly surprising. Uh, And he's sworn in on April 17th, 1939. And by the way, in case you're doing some math with his age here, he is still 40. He's only 40 years old. He is now a Supreme Court justice. He is the fifth youngest justice in the history of the court. At the time, he was the second youngest man to be nominated or appointed, denominated to the court. So at the time, this even then people would have been really, I think, shocked. So this is a really kind of incredible career trajectory that this is where he's at at 40. Um, And yes, even today, he's only our fifth youngest justice, which, you know, means that all things going well, he's going to be on the court a long time, which spoilers, he is. He really is. Yeah. Um, He's really young. Douglas immediately makes an impact. There is no sit back and sort of learn the ropes with William O. Douglas. He's here for life, man, and he's going to do it. Uh, And so he he's not a particularly consistent justice, which is immediately noticed, but he's going to be at odds with Felix Frankfurter, who is another FDR appointee, another sort of person in FDR's camp. Frankfurter believes in judicial restraint and thinks the court should stay out of politics. And Douglas is like, no. I don't think so. (laughs) Um, And so he says that justices are not neutral. The Constitution is not neutral. And he says, and this is a quote, it was designed to take government off the backs of the people. So that, I think, tells you a lot about his philosophy. He comes ready to fight. Yeah, there's no judicial restraint here. Again, he's a realist. He's interested in how the law can be used to actually fix or deal or confront with issues. And, you know, sometimes that comes across as inconsistent, but he's sort of like always on the side of we need to take action rather than in in action. Um, He becomes known as a civil libertarian. He is a strong advocate of the First Amendment. In fact, he believes in a literal interpretation of the First Amendment. So there is nothing that can restrict free speech. He is also, and I found this to be really fascinating when I did the the research for this, he is a very strong, very public pre-Stonewall advocate for gay rights. This is the 40s and 50s. So Stonewall is 1969. This is like early days. And he is very much on the side of uh, LGBTQ rights, which is really cool. Actually, I really like that. That's really cool. Yeah. And, you know, much of it is born out of he has a strong sense of individual rights and freedoms of people's right to make decisions. This actually a couple of his rulings in terms of right women's rights to contraception rights and access to birth control are places where he falls very much on the camp of the government's role is not to tell people what they can and cannot do with their with their bodies. It's that libertarian kind of aspect. And so, yeah, that, I find it fascinating that he is not always necessarily uh, progressive in every one of his rulings per se, but that overall, right, he falls so far into the camp of really supporting things like gay rights, which is really amazing. I also really loved kind of digging into this. And again, I'm not like a lawyer or a law clerk or anything, but that his opinions, and I actually read a couple, are really short. Mm-hmm. Like some of his opinions are like a page or two. I mean, there are opinions today that are 30, 40 oh, pages. Yeah. I mean, you're citing so many things. He liked to be pithy. He liked to keep it short. He was not concerned about having a particular style or voice. He wasn't concerned with like the facade of objectivity, which 
I kind of respect because mm -hmm. no one is fully objective. You're coming in with your background as a lawyer and your judicial background. And so he doesn't waste precious words pretending <laughs> to be fair and balanced. His opinions are really to the point. And he was set to have written most opinions in 20 minutes. <laughs> I love that. I love Which... that he just writes the book. Okay, we're done here. Let's go. Like, you know, I've, I've listened to, I've listened to what I've had to listen to. I've asked my questions. I know my, my mind, mm -hmm. like, it's very decisive. Like, I'd love to know what his astrological sign is just like very decisive. Now, of course, this is not going to endear him to his critics. People will say he's too hasty, that he's not really paying attention to the cases. People will say that, like, it's clear that he, he's not, he doesn't bring a nuanced understanding to the law because he does these so quickly. But other people sort of note and praise him for doing this because he's putting these opinions out there in language that is easy to understand. If you're a journalist trying to cover the court, you understand what Douglas means. Yeah. If you're an everyday American trying to understand how this decision impacts you, Douglas is understandable. It's relatable and it's blunt. There's no like room for interpreting what he meant. He says what he means in his opinions. And many people will sort of point to this as a bit of a turning point in the way that many of these opinions on the court are written. There's no obfuscating from what the real decision is. And he wrote the dissenting case 40% of the time. So that means that not only was he in the minority opinion 40% of the time, but that the other justices wanted him to write the dissenting case, right? That he was often seen as the best voice for voicing those objections, for making it clear why they disagreed with the majority opinion. Also, like additionally, the heir to Brandeis, who is the great dissent, he dissents constantly. Uh, and so it makes that sort of a very natural next step and transition. He is going to be face impeachment proceedings on the court. So it is possible to remove a Supreme Court justice. We've only done it once really not on the Supreme Court. It's a whole big thing. It's very difficult, but he is going to face a impeachment proceedings basically connected to, he grants a temporary stay of execution to the Rosenbergs, the couple that are convicted of selling plans to the atomic bomb of the Soviets. This is a big deal. The attorney general who had brought the case is going to take his objection to the chief justice uh, and the they reconvene the court and set aside the stay. Douglas has actually left for vacation because the court is now out of session. But learning of the special session, he comes back to Washington uh, and he is going to face impeachment proceedings in Congress because he tried to stay the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The attempts to remove him from the court don't go anywhere, but this kind of shows you that he really is a little bit outside the like mainstream, I think, uh, a bit at the time. He also takes st a strong stance on Vietnam. He's a, He had been very strongly opposed to uh, American sort of involvement in Vietnam. There's another famous case, Schlesinger versus Holtzman in 1973. Member of Congress trying to stop the military bombing in Cambodia. He gets involved. He actually will have a hearing. This is over the summer, so the court is at a session. He'll have a hearing at the local courthouse in Yakima, Washington, which is near where he his summer home is. He'll have like a, a hearing there. And he basically says he orders the military to stop the bombing. And the military ignores him. 
and keeps doing it. So this is going to really be uh, the court will will actually convene over telephone and overturn his ruling. But it's a it's sort of an important moment where Douglas kind of takes it upon himself to sort of have this hearing. The court isn't in session. He's not in Washington. So Douglas is very much uh, very controversial that William O. Douglas. A little, little bit of a rabble rouser. And honestly, he faces this even well into his, I'll say, dotage on the court. In 1970, he's going to find himself on the receiving hand or the receiving end of some pretty harsh speeches from one congressman by the name of Gerald Ford, who would later go on, of course, to be president of the United States. Ford is going to criticize Douglas for many things. One is who he gets his side income from. So as you may know, Supreme Court justices do things like write books and publish articles and go on lecture tours. Maybe you've heard of such things. And Ford is going to really launch sort of this case on the floor of the House that Douglas has gotten into bed with some pretty dangerous people. He's going to point to some casino financiers who have some ties to organized crime. He's going to criticize some of the publications. One of the um, publications that Douglas writes an article for was known for publishing naked photos of women. So there's criticism over that. There's also criticism over a, a article that he writes about folk music. So Douglas was a fan of folk music. And he wrote an article in Avant-Garde magazine, and it's going to be criticized for praising the lurid kind of aspects of left-wing folk singers. So it's really kind of, it's really a personal, a little bit more of a personal attack on Douglas. He never is able to get any article of impeachments passed, but there is, Ford leads this sort of attempt to try to impeach Douglas over kind of the source of money, where his money's coming from, and sort of the kinds of people he's aligning with. But I also think, I find that sort of fascinating in 1970 that you've got a Supreme Court justice that's writing for folk music magazines, that's putting out public support for a pornographic film that's out there really still kind of on the left wing of things at a time where, you know, I think that would have been really kind of scandalous. So Douglas really at every point in his career on the court is going to have people kind of gunning for him. And we'll talk about in a few minutes why he needs so much side money. (laughs) We'll talk about why. But the man is a workhorse when it comes to side gigs. He published 30 books in his lifetime. And he was a constantly outputting when it came to articles, when it came to speeches, when it came to any way he could kind of build up extra money, but also extra clout, get his ideas out there. This was a man who never tired. So there's also a political aspect. No one in Washington does anything without a political aspect to it. Gerald Ford is an ally, a strong ally of the president, Richard Nixon, who hates with a capital H, (laughs) William O. Douglas. The whole Cambodia bombing thing, that was Nixon. Basically, Douglas thumbed his nose at the president in staying the or uh, forbidding the military to attack a neutral target. And so there's a lot of thought that Ford is carrying the water for Nixon in trying to impeach Douglas because Douglas has a lot of, um, he's a lot, of, he's opposed to the war in Vietnam. He's got a lot of positions that Nixon doesn't support. Particularly, uh, this would further cement this like Southern strategy strategy that Nixon is trying to implement. Most of the congressional allies allied against Douglas are going to be Southern Democrats. 
that's sort of why there's an idea that that's why Ford does this. The timing of it is also fairly curious and has attracted a little bit of more recent speculation. The impeachment is brought right around the time that Nixon and Henry Kissinger have secretly planned an invasion of Cambodia, and they want to deflect news coverage away from the invasion of Cambodia and towards the Supreme Court justice. So there's, again, it's all about politics in Washington. And so Nixon can't stand him. And at this point, Douglas is not a young man anymore. He's been on the court for decades. And he's getting up to the point where he probably should start thinking about retiring. And this cements the idea that he will not retire as long as Nixon is in the White House. He is not going to let Nixon appoint someone to replace him. Absolutely not. Also, can I just say that if you're on Nixon's enemies list, if Nixon doesn't like you, you're probably living your life correctly. You are probably doing something right. Yes. You'd want to be on the wrong side of Nixon, I think. From like an ethical perspective. One of his most famous and sort of strange but yet kind of adorable positions is he's a really strong environmentalist and he's very consistent about it. He has a home near where he grew up in Yakima, Washington, like his summer home is there. And he there's a very landmark environmental case called Sierra Club v. Morton, which is really complicated. And I tried my very best and my non-lawyer brain couldn't quite figure it out. But basically, Douglas is in the dissent and he argues that inanimate objects should have legal standing to sue in court. What he particularly means by that is trees and environmental things, you know, all kinds of meadows and lakes and estuaries and beaches and et cetera, should have standing to sue in court for their own protection so that they are not swallowed up by greedy, terrible corporations. They're going to do bad things to them. And so it's a, it becomes sort of a, almost a joke that trees have standing, but it's a, he's making a really substantive point is that someone needs to have, and the Sierra Club is basically the, who's bringing this lawsuit. Sierra Club should have standing to speak for the environment, which obviously does not have a voice of its own because corporations are doing very well speaking for themselves and we allow corporations to have standing. So he's making this really interesting point. He spends a lot of time and energy and effort in all kinds of different environmental causes. And we're going to, we'll get to the CNO Canal because that's what we best know him and sort of talk about him for. Uh, but he is, he serves on the board of directors of the Sierra Club. He writes a review in 1962 of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which basically like jumpstarts modern environmental movement. Like he's very much in the forefront of a lot of these really important issues. Yeah, it's sort of amazing to consider that, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you had somebody so adamantly and outspokenly concerned about the environment, about natural protections at a time where that movement is just sort of beginning to emerge really politically with any real political strength. Douglas was there from day one and there will be several, I mean, that's his sort of most famous, but there'll be several uh, cases where he often notes 
ecological impact. He talks about the natural element and that's so, so vital. And it is, it's a shame that at the time it does get reduced to sort of this joke, but I think more and more we understand this today, right? That these um, spaces, these natural spaces, natural objects need protection under the eyes of the law. They need some sort of legal personhood or legal status that makes them somewhat equal to the companies or individuals that are trying to strip them of their resources. And I really respect him about that. Let's talk about the talk about the CNO Canal. Yeah, let's talk about the CNO. So yeah, Canal. so if you've been to Georgetown, um, and if you haven't, you should definitely go check it out. Uh, in Georgetown, we have a canal that goes back to 1828. Um, the CNO Canal, Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. That's what CNO stands for. Uh, the canal runs from Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland. It had been a sort of a vital part of the trade in our region through the 19th and early 20th century. It ceases operation in the 1920s, and you can imagine in the heart of Georgetown specifically, when there's no longer any trade along the canal, they drain it. It just kind of sits there as like a big empty hole. It's referred to as the Grand Old Ditch. And if you're living in that neighborhood, and if you've been to Georgetown, remember that how Georgetown looks today is the result of decades of preservation work. It's not how it looked in the 40s and 50s. That was just the beginning of sort of even the earliest, what we would call gentrification of that neighborhood. So you've got this old kind of industrial area. A lot of the buildings are falling into disarray. You've got this big empty hole where the canal used to be. And no smaller group than the National Park Service proposes building a scenic highway. So the Park Service, you might think that they'd want to like, I don't know, preserve what was already there, they want a scenic highway, kind of like the George Washington Parkway uh, in our area as well. And it's unclear, there were different proposals, but it would essentially have gone on top of or right alongside of the canal, but that was sort of their plan. And the Washington Post is going to put out an editorial saying, this is a really good idea. They're going to basically say, quote, the basic advantage of the parkway is that it would enable more people to enjoy these beauties now seen by very few. So their pitch is like, hey, if you can drive to nature, you're really, it's going to be good for nature. It's going to be good for nature if people can just load into their cars and we're going to build this big um, highway for you to go and enjoy this beautiful area. And Douglas is like, no, no way. So the CNO Canal, basically, if you're familiar with DC, it's basically what they want to do with the what the Whitehurst Freeway does today, essentially in Georgetown, except that on the ground and not elevated. And it's going to tear up the whole canal. And as Georgetown gentrifies this area of Georgetown had not been particularly lovely. It was kind of an economic eyesore. And the people who live in the wealthy areas of Georgetown don't want to live near this. And so there are a lot, there's a lot of people in favor of this. It gets the Washington Post support. And Douglas says, no, no, no. And the story that I have heard is that one day the reporter who wrote the editorial comes to work at the Washington Post and he gets a notification from the switchboard that he has a a phone call from Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, William O. Douglas. Now, it is not usual then, and it is really not usual now, for Supreme Court justices to just call up reporters. They're supposed to be silent. They're sort of above all of this. Uh, And so the reporter is like, what is happening? And so he basically picks up the phone and Douglas starts cussing him out. Your editorial is wrong. The canal is beautiful. It's worth saving. And so essentially what he's going to do, he says, I hike on the towpath all the time. Come with me. I will show you that it's worth saving and worth preserving. He challenges reporters to go on a 185 mile hike on the canal with him. And the Post, particularly led by this reporter, 
are convinced by this and they're going to publicly change their stance to support Douglas's efforts to preserve the CNO. So let me just jump in to say a couple things. One, you're absolutely right. I've heard it the same way that he sort of calls them up. But Douglas, every Sunday, every Sunday that he was on the Supreme Court, went on a 20 mile hike along the CNO Canal to stay in shape. So every Sunday, Douglas, I mean, he's in his 40s when he's first a Supreme Court justice, but then in his 50s and 60s, he's hiking 20 miles a day every Sunday. That's how he stayed fit and active. And when he reads this editorial from the Post, he's so outrageous that he actually replied. He wrote a letter to the editor, to the Washington Post. And Douglas said, quote, this is just a small little little snippet, but he said, the CNO Canal, It is a refuge, a place of retreat, a long stretch of quiet and peace, a wilderness area where we can commune with God and nature, a place not yet marred by the roar of wheels and the sound of horns. And then he later kind of chastises the reporters and says, the post should be using the power of this editorial page to keep this sanctuary untouched. So he basically says, you guys are part of the problem. And what I love about this hike is, first of all, it's eight days to hike this. So they hike for eight days. He is, you know, this is 54. So he's like in his 60s at this point. He's a little, you know, or late 50s at this Mm -hmm. point. Um, So he's not a young, young man. And he's going to really attract a lot of attention. So then along the way, you're going to have other hikers joining at different points. There would be different naturalist groups and environmentalist groups that would come out. So the reporters aren't just hearing from Douglas for eight straight days. All along the way, they're hearing from supporters, and it really becomes this big groundswell. And so it basically just gets everybody singing a new tune, and the Park Service has to abandon the idea of building a freeway two years later. Now, of course, government's a little slow. It takes a while for the Park Service to say, hey, we should just make the canal a protected park itself. That happens in 71. But it's really Douglas who rightfully gets the credit for sort of changing the conversation. And if you go to the heart of Georgetown, if you go by Lock 3, there's a bus to Douglas right there along the Seattle Canal. And if you go to the if you go to the Great Falls portion of the canal, there's a uh, NPS Welcome Center and they have a portrait of Douglas there in his hiking gear. So I love it because there's a portrait of Douglas at the Supreme Court. We have portraits of all of our Supreme Court justices there, but I like the vision of him. I'll put it in the show notes, but I love this. Like he's in his hiking gear with his like binoculars and his like hiking stick. And it's like, it's a very cute portrait of him. And you can see that in Great Falls. So before we discuss his personal life, I would also like to mention his foray into presidential politics. <laughs> in 1944, and we will do, it's on our list to do a drill down on the 44 election because it's deeply fascinating. Oh, it's really interesting. Roosevelt is running for an unprecedented fourth term. He has decided not to renominate his vice president, his second vice president, Henry Wallace. It's a whole mess. There's a lot of people who are sort of jockeying to take the position. And somebody suggests, hey, William O. Douglas, who at this point is about 45 years old and is uh, been on the court for a few years. And the vice presidential fight goes, comes down to the wire. It is suggested that Roosevelt status, states his choice would be either Harry Truman or Bill Douglas. Eventually, Douglas receives two votes on the second ballot and none on the first. And the, his nomination sort of peters out. And frankly, like if you have a lifetime appointment on the court, I wouldn't want to be vice president either. I would want to stay exactly where I am. But that's just me. In 1948, his presidential aspirations are rekindled by Truman's low power popularity and so they thought they democrats believe that truman cannot be elected on his own and so they're trying to find a replacing candidate and they talk about douglas ultimately 
Obviously, that doesn't go anywhere. Harry Truman actually ekes out a narrow victory, which is also pretty exciting and cool. But that's kind of how this goes. He does have brief flirtations, shall we say, uh, with the idea of uh, going into electoral politics, but ultimately stays where he is in the court. I would have to say that there's only a handful of people I can think of in the court's history that could even maybe throw the gamble in on that. And he's one of them. There's probably very good reason why we don't see more people go from one to the other. And it's set up that way. But yeah, Douglas, you can understand why people might have that speculation, that talk, that chatter. Because this is a, a man who in many ways seems better suited to be a more traditional politician, to be in Congress or be, um, you know, involved in politics in a more kind of on the ground way. But his passion, his love, and really his kind of faculty with the law uh, makes him so well suited for the court. But he has much in his personality and in his background and career, the makings of kind of a standard politician, especially kind of in this era. And yes, Then there's the personal life. And let me just say, before we get into the personal life, everything we're about to talk about in no small way also impacts why Douglas is such a controversial figure on the court. It's going to be easy fodder for his enemies. Even his friends will find things to criticize in the way that he handles his personal life. And this will probably also very much illustrate why, even if it would have been hard enough to go from the court to elected office, but all of this would have made it a lot more difficult. So let's let's jump into Douglas. Let's dive in. First wife. There's going to be, spoiler alert, four of them. So get ready. First wife, Mildred Riddle, is a teacher at North Yakima High School, six years his senior. Uh, They marry in 1923. So he actually comes back after graduating from uh, Columbia, marries her, and then they move back east. They divorce in 1953. So he's already on the court by this time. So they're married for about 30 years. uh, And he has two children with her, Mildred and uh, William Jr. And they don't have a great relationship. In fact, they don't tell him about their mother's death until several months after she passed because they just, they don't speak to him. So he's not a particularly vibrant presence in the lives of his children. Uh, His son, William Douglas Jr., actually becomes an actor uh so there you go he does he while he's married to his first wife he begins pursuing a woman named mercedes hester davidson in 1951 and it is not unusual at the time for justices to have extracurricular interests but usually they keep them away from the court sort of a little under the table as it were but douglas does um does not, as with many aspects of his personality, he doesn't seem to believe that that is necessary. He does what he does right out in the open. Uh, And as someone will say, he doesn't give a damn what people think of him. So yeah, he divorces Riddle in 1953, his first wife. And then he is going to marry Davidson, Mercedes Davidson, uh, about a year later in December of 1954. So just from a financial perspective, this is one divorce to which he's going to have to pay alimony. So That's going to be a little financial motivation for Douglas. (laughs) Several years later, he pursues a woman named Joan Martin, a college student. Let's just leave that there for a second. (laughs) Who's writing her thesis on him. The ego. Yeah. In the summer of 1963, she divorces Davidson, wife number two. 
Later that year, at age 64, he marries the 23-year-old Joan Martin on August 5th, 1963. Now he's paying alimony to two wives. (laughs) Two ex-wives. And he's married to a woman 40 years younger than he is. That marriage, surprising to probably no one but him, does not work out. They divorce two years later. And I think it's just worth noting, too, when this happens, when he pursues this college student and gets divorced and remarried within a matter of a year, 40 years younger, he is a sitting justice. This is a (laughs) national scandal. This is a big deal. People know who he is. So this is, again, fodder for his enemies. If you don't like Douglas's legal opinions or his politics, this is only going to give you more ammunition to say this is a man who has no control of his personal life. He has no personal control. So he's got one of these controversial marriages already. And then. And then. Shortly after his divorce from his third wife in 1966, uh, in the summer of 1966, he marries 22-year-old Kathleen Effernan, uh, a student at Merrill Hurst College. They met when he was vacationing at a lodge, a wilderness lodge. Uh, she was working as a waitress. <laughs> and this causes a scandal. He is in his upper 60s. She is 22 years old. He is a sitting Supreme Court justice. And now he has three ex-wives to whom he needs to pay alimony and a young fourth wife. So this is a lot. He is going to be dogged by rumors about his personal life throughout his public career. He has, it does not appear that he is particularly faithful to any of his wives necessarily. Um, And so he's going to have, this is going to be fodder for his detractors. This is red meat to anyone who wants to oppose him. This is perhaps uh, all of his political ambitions, you will note, really happened before his divorce from his first wife. Uh, So as he sort of marries second, third, fourth time, the political ambitions sort of disappear partially because of his colorful personal life. So he is going to be, that's going to be, uh, in fact, no less than Bob Dole is going to basically attribute his court decisions to bad judgment from a matrimonial standpoint. Uh, And several other members of Congress introduced resolutions None pass, uh, but they call for investigations of his moral character. So he is, um, his personal life is very colorful. He remains married to his fourth wife for the rest of his life. He retires from the court in 19, um, he suffers a stroke at age 76 in 1974 and it paralyzes part of his brain. And he insists, he's disabled at this point, but insists that he will not retire while there's a Republican in the White House. And by this time, by the end of 1974 and in 1975, Becca, who was in the White House? His old nemesis. Um. His, his good friend, his wonderful good friend, Gerald Ford. So now we got Ford in the White House, who, you know, no big fan to uh, Douglas. Mm. Although I will say to Ford's credit, he does appoint somebody pretty good to replace Douglas. He does. Uh, finally, Douglas just can't do it anymore and retires on November 12th, 1975. Uh, after 36 years of service on the court, he's the last serving Supreme Court justice to have been appointed by Roosevelt. In fact, he outlasted the last of Harry Truman's appointments to the court by eight years. So he was there a long, long time. They appoint John Paul Stevens, or Ford appoints John Paul Stevens to replace him. And Douglas basically tries to 
have it both ways like have a retirement and then he goes like basically shows back up to work on monday to his old chambers and is outraged that all of his clerks have gone to the new guy and so there actually has to be uh the chief justice warren Berger has to order that all clerks and businesses refuse to help douglas because douglas can thinks he still wants to be like sort of a retired justice emerita uh and basically there has to be a somebody has to sit down with him at some point and say nope you're really retired you need to kind of leave and move on with your life. So it is a, it's hard for him to sort of let go, but he is to this day, our longest serving justice on the Supreme Court by a solid two years. Next, the runner up is barely 34 years. Yeah. On the court. Um, incredible. I find Douglas just so interesting. Um, I love sort of the legacy of that seat because it's like Brandeis, Douglas Stevens and it's Kagan's seat today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like you think of them a little bit like family trees, and it's like yes. you know very interesting to sort of see the evolution of that particular seat. He's a man who I think went through an incredibly challenging upbringing with this real desire to make the country better, make our government better through the law. A man who also, though, had incredible ego and really saw himself as maybe this crusader and this man who was right always, no matter what anyone else had to say. And that ego sort of bleeds into, I think, the messiness of his personal life. (laughs) And the fact that even among the court, he struggles to, even among people to whom he shares perspectives and viewpoints, he struggles to make friends on the court. And I think part of it is the personality, the ego, the strive and ambition that he has. He's just a really complex, fascinating man. I I think an important element to uh, the 20th century when we talk about the Supreme Court. And his controversies do not end with his death, as it turns out. He dies at the age of 81 on January 19, 1980. He is buried at Arlington Cemetery. He is buried on what is called Justice Hill. So he's very close to Oliver Winter Holmes, uh, Warren Berger, eventually William Rehnquist, Hugo Black. Actually, John Paul Stevens is very close. <laughs> John Paul Stevens, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're all going to be buried in that same sort of area. However, his brief military service is not, an, they basically say that the claim that he served was false and that it's not appropriate that he was buried at Arlington. Uh, and essentially, like, it becomes this sort of minor scandal and they basically have to um, essentially shoehorn him into Arlington. So whether or not he was actually eligible is questionable, but he is buried at Arlington Cemetery. So that's where he is. We've seen his grave many times. Yes, if you take a tour with us at Arlington National Cemetery, you'll get a little point out of Douglas. I also like Rebecca talk about him on my Georgetown tour when we talk about the CNO Canal. Um, he makes me want to go hike the canal more than I do now, which is really only in the context of yep, tours. Yeah. Uh, well, that was William O. Douglas. I love talking about him. Again, if you're a patron, keep an eye out. We're going to be getting into a little more Supreme Court juiciness. We're going to go back to the early 19th century of the court and talk a little bit about court scandal. Um, so keep an eye on that if you're a patron. If you're not a patron, we appreciate and love you anyway. We really do love our, our listeners. I want to shout out a listener of the pod, a friend of the pod, but also a personal friend to ours, Colin. Colin, thank you for loving loving the pod. He's a wonderful tour guide, but also apparently a big fan. Yay. And uh, uh, we did a tour together and he was like full of ideas for future pods. So we're going to do a pod based on one of Colin's ideas in the future. So thank you, Colin. And to all the tour guides who listen to us, you can always check us out on social 
I don't know, in this day and age, who knows what social media platforms will still exist in the future, but you can find us on the socials as they exist, Tour Guide Tell All, or you can always email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We will be back at you later this month with another episode. Thanks for your patience with our slightly delayed October episode today. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.